T minus seven days till I'm an empty nester. <laughs> Kelly and I are so excited for this new life stage and for all of the opportunity that that affords in life, in ministry, in romance, in marriage, in ministry, all the different dimensions of life. And we're going to have to learn how to communicate with our children differently, right? Because it changes. Maybe we'll learn how to not just write an email or a message, but a letter. You know, there are certain letters that have changed the course of history. You might realize that some of these letters have probably changed things. Imagine the letters that Martin Luther and Pope Leo wrote to one another. Imagine how that shaped the way that we think and relate, not just in the church, but in the world. What about this letter here? Do you recognize the John Hancock here? This open letter of the Declaration of Independence? Boy, this is a letter that really changed the world. Another letter here that changed the world had to do with a letter that was sent between Albert Einstein, the famous scientist, and President Roosevelt. For Einstein was the one who wrote a letter to Roosevelt letting him know that nuclear capabilities was not a fiction but a scientific reality and that the Germans might develop this technology before the rest of the world unless we do something about it. Or imagine this letter that you get to see handwritten here. This is the handwriting and a copy of the letter that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from a Birmingham jail in 1963 during the Civil Rights Movement. That's a letter that changed the course of history. And so there's been letter after letter after letter that has changed the course of history, but none of them have changed history more than what we're attempting to put into your hands even if you were to look at the secular books that rank the different letters and how they have influenced history, almost all of them include in their top five Paul's letter to the church at Rome. But of course, our job isn't for us to just gather together and talk about the historical significance of a letter and how it may have changed society. That's not what we believe that this letter, what this book is all about. In fact, let's think of the letter in a very different kind of way. Reminds me of the story of James and Sally Bracey. They had been married for a handful of years back in the 50s, and in 1955, James was in the service, and he was out on the West Coast, and he wrote a letter to his wife back home. When he postmarked that letter and it was supposedly sent off, the post office had it and it got lost in the post office and it fell somewhere in a crack in a crevice somewhere, such to the point that they didn't find it for 46 years. They were finally renovating that space and they found that letter and then they found the Bracies who were both alive, who had both been married now for over 50 years, and Sally got to open that love letter from her husband. And after she read it, she was interviewed, and what she said was this, it meant a lot to me then, it means even more to me now. 
what you hold in your hands and what we're going to do for the next 16 weeks as we walk through this letter is that you need to recognize that this is a love letter from God. It's a love letter from God written to you and me personally as well as to us as a church, as an extension of the church in Rome. And yet what I want to tell you is that for many people, this letter has fallen through the cracks and has kind of gotten put aside and is unstudied and undiscovered. And what we're going to do all the way marching up till Christmas is we're going to take this letter and we're going to rediscover the love of the one who loves us. And so this is what we're going to do. Are you excited? Are you ready? Let me put something on the screen to get us kicked off with the book of Romans. Anybody able to read this? This is the oldest fragment of, well, actually, it's not just a fragment, the oldest copy of the entire letter that we have of the book of Romans. It's, it's around 1,800 years old. But the reason I put this up on the screen is that it can kind of fool us when we're looking in our modern Bibles and in our modern print that we forget that this was written a long time ago in a different culture, in a different language, within a very different setting. So while I think that studying the book of Romans is important, and while I think that it is the kind of thing that can really bless us and help us, I do not want to paint a picture for you that reading the book of Romans systematically as a church and for yourself individually is going to be easy. It is going to be hard. And so let me take us a little more into the ancient world and to how this was written so that hopefully it will come a little more alive for you and me today. And I want to show off some of my artistic skills with, you know, maps and things along those lines. This letter was written in around uh, around 1955, in around the year 55, a few centuries before then. Within 25 years of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ministry from Jerusalem over on the right, Paul has expanded his ministry. Saul, who was persecuting the church, who became the proponent of the church, is in Corinth, has made the leap into Europe, and while he is in Corinth, he hears and discovers that there is a Christian community all the way in Rome. Do not miss this. Within a quarter of a century, the faith has moved all the way from Jerusalem and as far as Rome. And he writes them a letter because his heart's desire is that he wants to be with them, and not just to be with them, but to continue all the way to Spain. And so because he's been thwarted and isn't able to be there, he has written this letter kind of as a precursor to the time when he can actually be there in the flesh. And so what we're going to discover as we walk through this magnificent book together is we're going to get to peek in on not just a moment of history, but we're going to get to peek in on the secrets of the gospel of how it exploded in terms of its power. So, Why did Paul write this letter? Well, he wrote this letter because he was going to be traveling to them and he wanted them to know what his purpose in his visit was in arrival. 
And he tells us exactly, he's explicit with it. He puts it like this. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be what? Mutually encouraged. Pastor Jay can tell you, anybody who's ever been on any mission experience, local or global, when they go beyond their comfort zone with the gospel, they always tell you that they got more out of it than they thought that they gave. It's one of the more universal things that we come to experience. Paul's reason from going there is because he knows that by going there, they will be mutually encouraged. And so here's what I want you to know at the outset. As you're reading the book of Romans and you're going to get confused, you're going to get caught in the weeds, and you're going to be like, why am I doing this? Remember that the purpose of this letter is mutual encouragement. And if you hang in there through the parts that you don't understand, or the parts that might rub you the wrong way, or the parts that you wish were not in there, that they are all in there for the benefit if we play the long con of our mutual encouragement. Now, do you remember when you were in like seventh grade English class and you had to learn how to write a thesis statement? I know that school was a long time ago for many of us. Or that you had to read something and you had to find the thesis statement. Now, there's a lot of scholars with a lot of commentaries, and I've read a lot of those over the course of the summer. And they may argue and disagree on a variety of things. The one thing they almost never disagree on with the book of Romans is they all agree on what Paul's thesis is. Here is Paul's thesis. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so let's think about this thesis and to follow up with it by thinking about what the gospel really is. First and foremost, it is a power. It is not an idea. It is not an education. It is not a mission statement. It is not a movement. At the core of what the good news of Jesus Christ is, is it is a power. The Greek word for it is dynamite. It is explosive. It is the power. But it's not your power. It's not my power. It's not our culture's power. It's not our church's power. It's not society's power. It is the very power of God. It is the power of heaven that created the universe. It is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is that same power from Almighty God that is in action in the world, both in that church in Rome and in our moment in time. It is the power of God, and it is for salvation. In other words, it is not for your personal benefit. It is not for your personal gain. It is not so that your life might be a little better with some Jesus in it than it would be if you didn't have Jesus in it. It is the power to rescue and that power of God that is rescuing is available to just some people, right? To ones that vote like you, to the ones that look like you, to the ones that think like you, dress like you, act like you, generationally have the same assumptions as you. No, of course not. It is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone. And how does that power come into your heart, into your life, into your community, into your family, and into this church? One simple thing. All you got to do is believe. Trust. Trust that the God of the universe who made everything, who sustains everything, and who is redeeming everything by this power, that that God is reliable. And so this is what the gospel is. And this is the gospel that Paul is going to take like a great gem with all of the facets, and you're going to see it from all kinds of different angles. Now, one of the reasons that I, in 25 years of pastoral ministry, have never systematically taught through the book of Romans to an entire congregation before is it's long. It's not like Philippians where you can do it during Advent in four short weeks. For some reason, somewhere in the church, we lost our ability to think past six weeks, anything after six weeks. I remember one time when I was in Southern California, I preached on seven weeks about God's view for money without asking for money. And after six weeks, people in the church were saying, we'll give, we'll give, stop talking about money. If we give, will you stop talking? I'm not going to stop talking about Romans, not for 16 weeks, okay? We're going to do it. But it's a little hard to understand. So what I have done in going to all of these different fantastic commentaries, I have created a mutant outline as if Tim Keller and Max Lucado and John Stott had a mutant commentary baby, and I have created the Conwisher outline. And you're going to see this a lot to try to make sure you don't get lost in Romans. Here it is. What a mess, what a gift, what a God, what a difference. What a mess is the first couple of chapters, one through three. Sin is worse than you realize. What a gift, chapters four through seven. Grace is bigger than your struggles or your challenges. What a God, love is stronger than your circumstances. What a difference, peace is closer than you think with chapters 12 through 16. You will see this outline over and over again so that you can make sure that you can zoom out in order to be able to see what God has in store for us. So are you excited with the book of Romans? I mean, this is an introduction, and so we're going to look at this Um, We are about to look at the second part of chapter 1. I am going to summarize chapters 1 through 3 for you. This is what the next three weeks are going to be like. Chapter 1, it's really bad. (laughs) Chapter 2, it's really, really bad. Chapter 3, no, no, no. It's really, really, really bad. So the next couple of weeks are going to be a challenge. If you were starting off a letter, if I was starting off a letter, Paul writes some nice things, Thanksgiving, I can't wait to be mutually encouraged, can't wait to be with you, I thank my God for you, this is the gospel, and then Paul says like things like this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. 
They became fools. This is not the letter of how to win friends and influence people. Is this how you tend to write to the people around you? But Paul does not pull any punches. In fact, let's zoom to the end of chapter 1 to see what he says. In fact, I'm pretty sure this is the only time congregation has ever said this in unison together. So let's say this together, in unison, together. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Aren't you glad you came to church? Wow. Paul's point, there isn't a single aspect of our lives that is not marred by our depravity, by our unrighteousness, and by our sin. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have to wade through these waters. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be personal. Was there anything out of that list that anybody hasn't done? Gossip? So the point is, is that we realize that all of our lives have been tainted, warped by our unrighteousness. Now, there's one particular part of this letter that is particularly shocking for our modern ears. Because when you read Romans chapter 1, you're going to see a handful of verses, not just about human sexuality, but about homosexuality. And the question is, what do we do with that as we read it today? There is no way with the four and a half minutes remaining that I can do any justice to the subject of sexuality. Let me tell you this and give you an invitation. One, there is no way that we're going to read this letter nor explore the whole ethic of Christianity and not have the modern ethic on sexuality really challenged in today's society. In addition to that, there is no way for us to read faithfully this letter and not have us as Christians challenged in the way that we have addressed issues of human sexuality. We're all in this together. Remember, it says that the gospel is available to all, and yet there are some hard things to discuss. Knowing I can't address them directly and comprehensively, here's my invitation to you. And this is, there's a reason this is not premeditated, and announced in advance, tonight, if you want to come back to this room at 5 o'clock, I will give you the Rich Conwisher extended version of understanding the Christian ethic of sexuality, gender, fluidity, all of the hot topic of that is, right here in this room tonight, and there will be time for you to ask questions, and we can have a dialogue about a very personal and difficult discussion. Does that seem fair? Okay, because I don't want to ignore it, but I also don't want to just give you a soundbite and move on for something that's really difficult. Now, let me show you something really cool that I discovered this week. 
This is a graph of a word in the Greek language because the letter to the Romans was written in Greek. Paradidomai. Say that with me. Paradidomai. It means to hand over or to deliver, to give, or to betray. And you see a graph of all the different usages of that Greek verb in the New Testament. 121 times this common word appears in the New Testament. And the shocking thing that I had never seen before in studying the back portion of Romans chapter 1 is this, is that in Romans chapter 1, three different times, Paul says this verb, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. For this reason, in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. It's like God, and it appears, if all you're going to read is chapter 1, it appears that God is giving up on them and on us. But that's not how it is, because this word is so important to understand where it's going to take us later. Let's look at some of these other usages. If you're looking at the Gospel of John, so Pilate gave Jesus up over to them to be crucified. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, paradidomai. And then here in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then the only other time that Paul uses this verb later in Romans is this, in the crown jewel of the chapter. Three times in chapter one, he says, I gave them up, I gave them up, I gave them up. And then when Paul picks up this word again, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with us him graciously give us all things? It appears when you're reading chapter 1 that God is giving up on humanity because of all of the brokenness and all of the sinfulness and all of the fallenness and all of the unrighteousness and God is giving us this freedom and we are abusing it. And yet what we will find out is that God has not stopped paradiddling my for you and for me. That the way he deals with us having given up on him is that he gives himself to us. Now maybe the hardest part of Romans chapter 1 for us to understand is this. In verse 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. One of the most beloved hymns of not just our church, but of the modern church today is a a relatively new hymn written by Getty and Townsend, the In Christ Alone song that we often sing. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm from the fiercest droughts and storms. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled and and striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. 
In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the very ones he came to save. Then on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Our Presbyterian denomination, the portion of God's family, about 10 years ago was putting together a new hymnal and they reached out to the Gettys and said, we love your song, we would love to include it. And the Gettys said, of course, we're honored that you would include our song in your hymnal. But the Presbyterian hymnal committee said, we want to include it, but we, we want to make a word change. We're not comfortable saying, and on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We wanted to say, and on that cross where Jesus died, the love of God was glorified, magnified, something like that. Doesn't that sound nicer? (laughs) You know what the Gettys said? No. No. They say no because they don't believe in the love of God and that the cross magnifies or glorifies the love of God? No. The reason they said no and that we can't dance around the hard stuff, the sin, is that if we do not address the dimension of God's love that is the wrath of God against sin and injustice and brokenness, we will never understand the love of God. Can't tiptoe around it. It's not just in one verse here. His anger lasts for a moment, but his grace or his favor, the Bible says, lasts for a lifetime. If we don't understand the wrath of God, the cross gets reduced to a series of unfortunate events. And so, yes, God gets angry. He gets angry because of the mess that we have made of our lives in this world. And that that anger finds its completion in the cross where Jesus pays the price for you and for me. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world and darkness slayed, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell. No scheme of man will ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. 
Let's pray. Our loving God and Father, we pray that over the course of these next 16 weeks that your power will explode within our hearts and within this church. We know that this power cannot be contained by just our own personal faith, but if we put our simple trust in you, it will explode into every aspect of our lives, even changing unrighteousness into faithfulness. And so will you help us in this morning, O God, to wrestle with the extent of our brokenness and help us to understand that we can't fix that on our own, that we need the power of the salvation of the gospel. And so we pray all of these things with great anticipation in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray, and all of God's people said.